podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. must move through our trauma before it is possible to restore wholeness, experience lasting joy, and develop our true potentials. After abuse or trauma, we think the best way to deal with our brokenness is to keep it buried deep down inside of us. Somehow we think it is safe there and forgotten about. It is not. We carry that weight with us. When we keep the trauma buried, It can hang on to anger and resentment, affect our coping choices, hurt our relationships, and prevent happiness. It is not until we move through and out of our pain that we can then establish becoming our best selves and find fulfillment. We matter. Our stories matter. We can go from feeling damaged to feeling worthy. It is possible to heal from our traumas. It is possible to become whole again after brokenness. You can become Kintsugi. Kintsugi is a Japanese art form where they take broken pottery and put it back together with lacquered silver, platinum, or gold. It comes with the belief that once something has been broken, it can become stronger and more beautiful once repaired. The cracks are meant to be highlighted, not hidden. It is a means to become whole again and embrace our imperfections. It's time to break the silence. It's time for uncomfortable conversations. It's time to start eliminating the statistics. Valeria Tellis interviews Kathy Studer on the six attributes anyone can use to initiate healing while reducing the occurrence of depression, anxiety, or PTSD. In this episode, Kathy also provides practical actions and tragedies to identify and eliminate sexual abuse. Kathy Studer is a survivor of long-term childhood sexual abuse. After pulling together the pieces of her own shattered life, she discovered her purpose and now passionately shares the critical components required to becoming whole again. During her journey, Kathy has transformed from survivor to advocate warrior, As a speaker and coach, she is passionate about encouraging others into healing and raising awareness to defeat the statistics. She lives in Ohio with her husband and a loving yellow lab and has two amazing adult children. Here is the interview with Kathy Studer. In your own words, who is Kathy Studer? Kathy Studer is an author, a speaker, and a coach who 
wants to guide others to put together their shattered pieces of their own brokenness, traumas, or hurts, and bring them to becoming whole again and finding their best potentials, true joy, and fulfillment. Thank you so much. So I have a few warm-up questions before we talk about your book, Broken to Beautifully Whole, a compelling crusade to break the silence, move through the trauma, and heal the pain. So my first warm-up question is, what is life? Life for me is a journey of experiences while we're here on earth that ultimately, hopefully, bring us to our purpose of bettering other people's lives with bettering our own life at the same time. I believe life is meant to be enjoyed within the ups and downs. And life is a place of fulfillment. If we can work through our experiences and the journeys that we're meant to take to learn and grow. What would be the opposite of life? Good question. The opposite of life for me would be absence of joy, pain, not knowing our purpose, going through the day-to-day and just plowing, not experiencing. What is another word for healing? For me, empowerment. I would say another word for healing is empowerment because that is what healing brings to us when we've stepped through that process or pilgrimage. What is the meaning of freedom to you, Kathy? The meaning of freedom is the ability to make choices about what we want to do in the day, how we want to embrace the day. <laughs> I like the way you limit to the day, right? Not to the week, the year, the months, right? Yes. What is your greatest joy? My greatest joy is, honestly, my greatest joy is listening to people laugh. (laughs) That's one of the things I talk about in my book. I hearing, watching people smile and laugh brings me more joy than anything else. What is the world's greatest need, in your opinion? I believe the world's greatest need right now is love their lack of. And I think if we had more love, so what does that really mean? Love for another human being means respecting our differences, rather that be religion, sexual orientation, whatever it is where we have a difference, being able to, if you move forward with love, you can look at people and their beliefs so differently. And we don't fall into the judgment or the hate so quickly that, unfortunately, I sometimes see. I like that. So in a way, you believe in unconditional love. Yes, absolutely. Because if you can have it for another human being, it you look at them very differently. You look at your neighbor differently. You look at a coworker differently. You treat people differently. 
if we step forward with love. What a wonderful state of mind to live in. Stay within the topic of love. Do you believe that it's only possible to love unconditionally when we learn to love ourselves unconditionally? Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. And that's (laughs) probably one of the hardest things to do when people have suffered hurts, trauma, or brokenness because of the shame or other feelings we're using. It's so hard to love ourselves first. And then we get stuck in that cycle of broken relationships because we haven't stepped into loving ourselves first. We haven't stepped into that self-compassion. Yeah. We'll talk later about self-compassion, right? What, where, and who is God? What is God to me is a higher power that is there for us to draw strength from, lean into, and propel our own love. I think God is is love. Where is God? I believe God is actually is within all of us. If we tap into it and dig deeper into it, I believe we all have a piece of God within us. Kind of like the saying, the Holy Spirit is within us. I believe God is within us and I believe God is there in the universe to, to in the universe and the heavens to talk to, to share with, to draw strength from and compassion. I have my last question, warm-up question that I think you answered earlier when I asked, who are you? But let me ask you again in a different way. What is the purpose of your life? The purpose of my life was unknown to me for a very long time until I was propelled by a conversation by one of my clients from my trade job. My purpose in life is to guide people to healing, to empowerment, and to try to raise awareness to this exact issue. The issue of abuse, abuse of any kind. I mean, mine personally was sexual abuse, but abuse of physical abuse, emotional abuse, any abuse. So let's talk about broken to beautifully whole. Why did you wait so long to write your story, Kathy? I was so afraid to share my story. I was afraid of what people would think of me. How would people look at me? I have been a people pleaser my whole life. And that actually is a a coping method sometimes after abuse. And I wanted to please. And I was afraid. I was afraid of how people would respond. Would they look down on me? Would they judge me? Would people think less of me? Unfortunately, why so many survivors don't speak up, don't use their voice. It's the shame and the humiliation that we carry of, was it our fault? Did we do something wrong? And then again, the fear piled on top of that is how will they respond? How will the world respond? And we're so afraid that we hold back our voice and we don't use our story. And the other part, I didn't know, could I share my message well enough? Could it be perceived well enough? And it wasn't till an event, again, like I spoke 
about earlier that I had with my client. And I went into deep introspection after that and a lot of reflection before I began to step into the journey of even thinking about writing a book. Wow. Is this a state of being ashamed connected to the uh, state of being a victim, the state of mind of victimhood? It is connected because most victims do feel shame. I would say 99.9% do feel shame in some way because you couldn't protect yourself or you feel like, did this happen to me because I'm bad? Did I deserve it? Especially when this when the trauma happens as a child, these are the questions that you ask yourself over and over. Why me? Why did this happen to me? And when you ask the why me questions and you can't give an answer, it creates the shame and the humiliation. It just propels it. The event itself alone creates shame. But then when you ask the why me, it takes it to a whole nother level. Yeah. Earlier, you mentioned uh, fear, and that's, and then we become afraid. Do you believe that fear is the opposite of love, of self-love? Oh, gosh, yes. Absolutely. You can have a little bit of fear within self-love, but then we're quicker to step into courage and vulnerability when we have self-compassion versus when we don't have that the fear is stronger and more dominant and it's that much harder to step into courage and vulnerability. And that's why you use the word stuck. Then now we are feeling stuck and we can move forward. Yes, exactly. And too many, too many survivors are stuck. Do you feel that this is the same uh, for men and women or more challenging for women? That is a great question. I think, I think it's a little bit different. I think it's different for women in the fact that we're, the emotions are harder. I think it's a little bit harder for women to step into self-compassion because women as a whole in society today, we're quick to judge ourselves. We, we're quick to judge our looks, our hair, our nails, our body. I don't think men are quite as bad at that. But I also think it's harder for men in the fact that the male ego has a sense of, I should have been able to protect myself. Even if it happened as a child, I should have been able to protect myself. But the shame and humiliation is absolutely the same, rather it's male or female. You say that we must move through our trauma before it is possible to restore wholeness, experience lasting joy, and develop our true potentials. It's so important to move through our trauma because when we hold that shame down inside of us, it is always a part of us. You can smile, you can go about your day-to-day but if you fully don't let it go, it's like, here's a good way to compare it. It's like carrying a 30-pound backpack on your back. Yes, you could go about your day. You could do your job. You could be a mother. You can be a father. You can do all of that. But it's a piece that weighs us down. 
and it constantly weighs us down. There's always some piece. It will hold you back from that extra self-compassion. It will hold you back from being fully resilient. It can hold you back from allowing full gratitude in your life. It can, it's just enough weight to hold us back from being our best. And it's unfortunately, it requires sometimes moving through it and letting and having that short term acute pain of feeling it and dealing with it to then bring us the benefit of letting go of the chronic long-term pain of the weight when we do carry it. Because sometimes people don't even realize that when they carry it, that that might be why they may not be making the best coping choices or the best partner choices. Because we still have that little bit of shame that's laying inside of us. And it's not until we fully move through it and out of it and let it go and drop that baggage that we can then step into becoming our best selves. Right. It makes so much sense. And that's the next, uh, my next question about the practices. You call them attributes that you applied as steps, healing steps. But before that, I have another question. How do we know for sure that we have become healed? Or when do we know and throughout the process? I would say we know when we're healed, when we're not afraid to use our voice, we're not afraid to tell our story, we're not afraid to share with others we can fully embrace the attributes that I talk about and know that we're in the best place we could absolutely be in. Would you say that also having no regrets would be one of the signs that we have healed? Yes, absolutely. It could be. It absolutely could be. You don't regret stepping into that vulnerability or that courage. You don't regret telling your story. Yeah, and maybe not regretting waiting a long time to tell this story as well. Just accepting and embracing the way we uh, navigated through the um, the pain. So I like the idea of accepting. And I, that's the way, in a way, I could tell that I was healed just because I was so kind with myself. Exactly. And that's self-compassion is such a strong one. And here's another really big one that we'll talk about as well. But I think you're fully healed when you also know that you can truly forgive. Forgiveness is the hardest for most of us. You know, the definition of forgiving is easy, but the act is not. And when we can fully forgive, I think that's another step towards knowing that, yeah, I am healed because I can forgive. I can look at it differently. Yeah, right. And you talk about perspective. So let's get into the, uh, the steps, the attributes, perspective, resilience, gratitude, self-compassion, faith, and forgiveness. Talk to me about them, Kathy. Perspective was, and I give those, I lay those out in my book, the attributes in the order of which was the easiest for me to apply, 
which was the hardest for me to apply. Our perspective is the way we look at the world and the way we experience the world. Everybody's heard the term glass half full, glass half empty. Which way do you lean most of the time? Do we lean more glass full, more glass empty? What I can tell everyone is that when we have a constant glass half empty view of the world, it holds us back from healing and we get stuck on that negative hamster wheel of negativity and we don't know how to get off. Resilience is the strength within us that we can build upon and gain through our life experiences just by going through traumatic events or traumas, we build our resilience. However, what I can also tell you is that if you have a negative perspective on life, it holds our resilience back and it breaks it down. So each of the attributes that I talk about truly connect piece by piece. And I talk about in my book, there are different things that we can do to build our resilience, to become stronger when we do go through life's tough moments. But I'll just briefly touch on one of my favorites. One of my favorites is perseverance. Perseverance to a goal within our failures will build our resilience. And the key word within our failures, because we're all going to have them. But when we step back up, pick ourselves up, brush ourselves off, and continue on, and then we can actually meet that goal, it's a great way to build our resilience. Gratitude, yes. Gratitude is the means of being grateful for what we see and what we have. I was fortunate as a young child I would occasionally have gratitude for simple moments. It could be as simple as frosting cookies with my mom or playing a board game with my brother. I would find even as a child, if I could have a tiny bit of gratitude for that moment, it would reduce my pain. It wouldn't take away my pain, but it would reduce it. Later in life, when I really dove into the gratitude and I really stepped further into my healing pilgrimage. I started a gratitude journal. I added, I did my gratitude journal at night before I went to bed. For me, it made me feel better and it allowed me to sleep a little bit better, but I would write down three things that I was grateful for. These would be three items that I found to be good in my day. Because the reality is every day is not good. However, we can find something good in every day. And if I wrote down these three things, what I found is long-term, it would make me feel better. And then when I started researching for my book, then I dove into the research behind that And the value of adding gratitude in our lives as a habit, keyword on habit, 
it actually works the neurotransmitters in our brain for good. Self-compassion, this was hard. And I'll be completely honest and tell you that this is something I still have to work on today. Self-compassion has to be an awareness. An awareness to the conversations that we have in our head to ourselves a mindset and a choice to change and shift. And once I started applying self-compassion, I could feel myself getting stronger. I could understand the value of having a little more confidence. And the best gift with self-compassion is you can slowly pull the pieces back together of incredibly low self-esteem and very low self-worth. Oh, before that, Kathy, I have a question. So we talked earlier about unconditional self-love or unconditional love. Do you connect self-compassion to unconditional self-love? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Self-compassion is necessary to have unconditional self-love. Absolutely necessary. And that self-compassion is that the kindness towards ourself. It's having empathy. It, it doesn't mean you can't realize you've done something wrong. It doesn't mean we step forward with ego. You know, there's a difference. Self-compassion is the opposite. Self-compassion allows us to see our shortcomings, but it also allows us to see our gifts and know what we can do to be better. I like that because that could easily be confused with the selfishness, right? The practice of selfishness. Yes, 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 yes. Self-compassion allows you to not be selfish. Right, so true. You also then extend kindness and compassion towards others, which also works the neurotransmitters in our brain for good. I love the science behind it too. Yes. If we go back to faith, faith was also incredibly hard. When I was a little girl, I would lay in bed at night and pray to God for this travesty against me to end. When my prayers were not answered, I would ask, how could a God exist and not answer my prayer? How could a God exist and let this happen to children all over the world? Or if he does exist, does he think I'm bad too and deserve it? Because that is unfortunately what I believed about myself. So it was not a quick trip, yet it was a journey I chose to embark on. It took time. It took layers. It took studying people of strong faith, people of no faith. I read scripture. I was blessed to go on an Emmaus walk. And the gift was my faith ultimately landed in a place of love, compassion, and strength, which I was so grateful for. But the next biggest gift with my faith was that I could begin to consider forgiveness, which felt impossible, which brings me to my last attribute and by far was the hardest for me, 
when I embraced or even thought about forgiveness, I had to ask myself what my stepfather did to deserve my forgiveness. And how do you, how do you forgive someone who stripped you of your childhood innocence? And how do you forgive someone who never said they were sorry? But what I would learn long-term is forgiveness was not about him, is forgiveness was about me. And there's a saying I love, holding on to anger and resentment is like drinking poison, but expecting the other person to die. It hurts us. It doesn't hurt them. And forgiveness for me was that last piece of pulling me back together where I knew I was whole again and I knew I had become Kintsugi. I like that. I'll be, I'll be asking you a question about that in a minute. Uh, before that, I have other questions here about faith. Is hope, faith, and trust the same to you? I think they're connected. I definitely think they are connected. I think hope is connected to faith because faith allows us to have hope, hope for good, hope for betterment. And I trust is connected to faith because we actually put trust in a higher power. We put trust that that higher power if we look to that higher power, if we look to our God, it's a voice to guide us, to allow us to extend love and compassion to others. And I have a question about forgiveness. Was it more challenging for you to forgive yourself or others? I believe they're connected. I believe forgiving ourselves and forgiving others is connected. For me, it was harder to forgive myself first. However, I knew I couldn't forgive him if I couldn't forgive myself first. And it actually took longer and it was harder for me to forgive myself because when the abuse ended, my mom called children's services and they came out to our house and they told us what would happen if we prosecuted. The children's service director that came out to speak to us told me that I would have to get on the stand, told me everything that was involved, and she told me that my name would be in the paper. Thank goodness it was not like that today. I knew I could handle being on the stand, but when she said my name would be in the paper, fear and more shame ran through my entire body. I was petrified. I was petrified of people knowing and shaming me even more than the shame that I already felt. And I also knew if we prosecuted, I knew my father would try to seek custody. I knew at that point in my life, I needed my mom to try to heal. So unfortunately, that led to the decision to not prosecute. That meant my stepfather could go on. When 12 years after that, when I was fully into my healing pilgrimage, I called Children's Services 
because I found out where he lived and I wanted them to know. I knew I couldn't prosecute, but at least I was at a point where I could make that phone call. I was an adult now. I could stand up for myself. I wasn't concerned as much how people would look at me. And unfortunately, the laws wouldn't allow me to do anything. And the person who spoke to me on the phone was incredibly bothered and asked me, why are you calling me now? What do you want me to do? And my hope was that he could at least write down his name so that if anybody else called, they would at least have some type of a record. I mean, even though Children's Service has a record from when my mom called, but this was another record. Now today, thankfully, the laws are changing. There is a bill being introduced here in Ohio called the Strauss Bill, and they're looking to extend the statute of limitations to 20 years in hopes of it allowing children to then, once they become an adult, to have the ability to then prosecute. And I hope and pray that happens. I think it should. So for me, you know, and again, going back to myself and the anger towards myself, I was angry at myself for not being strong enough to prosecute. Because unfortunately, these are the things we say to ourselves when our self-compassion is low. When I applied self-compassion, then I could look at myself and have empathy towards that little girl who was already carrying brokenness and shame and didn't have that next step or that strength or that support system from children's services to say, hey, we're not, we're going to protect you. We're going to give you more strength because we're going to protect you. And I could look back at that little girl and know that she didn't have that. And for that reason, she made the decision she did, not because she didn't want to not protect anybody else, but because she was so afraid. I'm so glad to hear that this is changing. I didn't know. So perhaps one state at a time, they will be adopting this new amendment, a new law. That is my hope. It needs to happen. It's necessary. It allows more survivors to have a voice. It allows protection. It can reduce the statistics. Talk to me about the Japanese art form that relates to becoming whole again and embracing our imperfections. That is so beautiful. And I don't know how to pronounce the name. That's why I didn't say. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> it is called Kintsugi. It is a Japanese art form where they take broken pottery and they put it back together piece by piece with lacquered silver, platinum, or gold because it comes with the belief that when something's been broken, it can be repaired and become stronger and more beautiful. The cracks are meant to be highlighted, not hidden, because it's a means of becoming whole again and embracing our imperfections. For me, Kintsugi was the perfect metaphor for my healing journey, because when I added each attribute in my life, it was a piece pulling me back together. And when I completed forgiveness and I could embrace it, that was the last piece. 
in my kintsugi pottery. That's beautiful. And that's in the cover of your book. It shows the pot. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. I never heard about it. Yeah. So I'll research that too. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well, it's interesting. When I started doing my book, I had a completely different vision of an egg. And when I was doing my research, I came across the Japanese art form and I knew immediately that it absolutely had to be my cover because it too perfectly for anyone's healing journey, not just my own. Absolutely. So let's talk about some practical actions to identify and eliminate sexual abuse. What are some of them, Kathy? The first is teaching our children that they have boundaries with their bodies. This is for any parent, grandparent, aunt, uncle, niece, nephew. We can start this at an incredibly young age. Children as young as three are old enough to understand the concept of having a body boundary. And we teach them this, then it comes with also what is consent? What does consent look like? What does consent sound like? And then we can teach them no. It's okay to say no. Even when someone is kind to you or may give you a gift, it's okay to say no. And then it's okay to be a tattletale. Because sometimes perpetrators will teach children that, well, you don't want to, nobody likes a tattletale. Don't be a tattletale. No, it's okay to be a tattletale. And our kids need to know this because being a tattletale could protect someone or it could protect yourself. So this is critical for teaching children this at a young age, but then we will want to continue the conversation as the vulnerabilities continue, even into middle school or high school. And the, the conversation of consent needs to change because what does consent look like if someone's going to drink alcohol? When we drink alcohol, alcohol, alcohol first goes to the frontal lobe of the brain, which is our decision-making process. What decisions are we making when this happens? Another form of reducing vulnerabilities is for survivors to break the silence. Be that voice. First of all, breaking the silence creates a resolution in the brain that actually starts the healing process. Breaking the silence also starts to give us the reality of what our true statistics are. Another way is to be that safe place if someone shares their story with you. Respect the vulnerability of what they just shared with you. Believe, believe their story. The Justice Department tells us that 97 to 98% of reported cases are true. That means only 2, two to 3% are not true. However, only one third of parents believe their children 
when their children tell them that something happened to them. Wow, and that is an issue, isn't it? It's a disconnect. It's a disconnect. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's hard to believe that um, I have heard cases like that too, close to me actually, that the mother didn't believe. Yeah, I, I hear it way too much. It's unfortunate because not only does the child have the shame and humiliation of the event, but now it compiles more shame because the person they love and the person they're supposed to trust doesn't believe them, nor are they protecting them. And it's so much harder for that person to heal when they don't have that. It is possible, but it's harder. But another action I want to talk about going back to children is sometimes we unintentionally make our children vulnerable to a statistic and we don't even know it. It's not our intent, but it can be the byproduct. One of the examples I give in my book is forced affection. And I see this happen so much where mom or dad will say, go give Uncle Johnny a hug. Come on, come on, go give him a hug and a kiss. And the child steps behind mom's leg. They don't want to. They feel uncomfortable. They're too scared. And mom or dad goes, no, come on, come on, go, go give Uncle, it's Uncle Johnny. He's harmless. But unfortunately, what in that moment, what we just taught our child, is that they don't have the ability to say no when they're uncomfortable. Yeah, and they're actually following their intuition, right? When they hide, yeah. Yeah, we just broke down that body boundary that we should be teaching them. We want to teach them body boundaries, not forced affection. And granted, Uncle Johnny might be completely harmless, but we have to go to the statistic that 90% of abusers are people they know and trust. 90%. So if they've now learned that if Uncle Johnny wants to hug and kiss them, they have to do it. How are they going to say no later when it's a time that they need to say no? How wonderful that you're putting this out there. Because this is very informative. Thank you. And it is a challenging conversation, isn't it? A lot of people don't want to hear it. Oh, they don't. They absolutely don't. It's uncomfortable. And they don't want to think that someone in their family or someone that their child knows is possible of this. But yet, it is our reality. Another form that I want to say that I, I another action I think parents or grandparents, aunts, uncles, anyone, watch your children play. Listen to your children when they play. Because sometimes an event that is too hard to talk about, they will play it out. They will draw it. They will color it. They will say different things to their friends. An example I give in my book is if anyone would have truly listened to me playing Barbie dolls in my room when I was a little girl, would have heard me tell the same story over and over. I had a Barbie doll who was in a bad situation and being abused. 
and another Barbie doll would come in and save her. And this playtime was my way of trying to hang on to hope, hope of being rescued, hope of it ending. And it was also a very tiny release of the shame. So I encourage parents to truly sit down and watch your kids play, have the conversations, listen, watch, and learn. Children's behavior start to change. It could change as simple as they weren't as shy and now they're more shy. They don't want to go see a certain person. They don't want to be around a certain person. They withdraw more than they normally would. Maybe they cry more. Maybe they're acting out more. This is why we then need to step into the conversations and pay attention and teach. Everything you say sounds very much like common sense. Yes. But it's not, right? In a way, it's so subtle. It is. And it's just, we've never thought of it this way before. You know, when you tell people, don't create forced affection, don't make them hug, they're like, oh my, I never thought of it that way. And it's not, that's why I say it's unintentional. It's not many of us, it's not our intent. It's just the byproduct. But that's why we have these conversations to change the way of thinking right changing perspective as you said it's almost like starting the healing process before a tragedy happens i like that better <laughs> yes prevention is so much better than trying to recover from the trauma and that's my hope. That's that's why I'm an advocate lawyer right now. I'm doing my best to get my message out there. Because first of all, if we can take actions, practical actions to reduce the statistics, our children then are far more empowered. And also, I'm an advocate warrior to offer healing and guidance and the value of my attributes for someone to fully move through and out of their traumas. Because unfortunately, too many people haven't. Yes, right. Too many. You're right. Would you like to add anything to the conversation or read a passage from your book, Kathy, uh, before I begin asking you my final questions unrelated to the subject? I suffered damage as a child and I was broken. The healing attributes I applied were the powdered silver, gold, and platinum that pulled me back together. There wasn't only one attribute that healed me. It was applying each one that put me back together piece by piece. I am now a beautiful piece of pottery who is stronger and meant for more. I am Kintsugi. We are all meant for more. We are meant to experience happiness, joy, and fulfillment. Money, technology, and power are not the ultimate source of our happiness. They have no meaning without fulfillment. Fulfillment comes with conquering traumatic events and finding a purpose in our lives, which gives us meaning. All of this is our choice. We have the choice to live with joy and purpose. We have the choice to not let our tragedies to define us. 
How beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. For your message, for your presence, for your beauty, for your peace. You're very, very peaceful. My final questions to you. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change about your life? Do anything differently? That is a great question. Gosh, the only thing I would do differently in my life, I wish I would have started my Advocate Warrior Crusade earlier. Honestly, that would be the only difference because everything that has happened to me has brought me to this place of finding my purpose. So I wouldn't change anything other than I would definitely wish I would have started the journey about 15 years early. <laughs> Um, do you believe in life after death? I do. What kind of life? I believe in life after death in heaven. And my heaven is a place where everyone has joy. Everyone has happiness. Everyone has compassion. Everyone supports each other. It's a place of harmony. It's a place of beautiful nature. It's a place of... Uh, harmony. I guess that is, that's probably the key word. It is a place of harmony and beauty. I would use those two words. My heaven is a place of harmony and beauty and contentment and joy. What are three things about life you know for sure as of today? I know for sure that we each have a purpose. I know for sure that we are all loved by God. I know for sure that we are meant to support each other and lift each other up. Thank you so much again, Kathy. Thank you. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? My book, Broken to Beautifully Whole, is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It is available in audio print, ebook. You can reach out to me at my website, which is kathystuder.com. You can also join me on Facebook, Kathy Studer, and Instagram with Kathy Studer. Thank you so much again and again. And I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Kathy Studer, please visit her website, kathystuder.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.